Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. I'm so glad you're with us today. We've got a fantastic interview lined up with Dr. Jim Dolly, the white coat investor. Jim is an emergency room physician and blogs at whitecoatinvestor.com. If you haven't been there, I'd highly encourage you to go check it out. It's a really great website that encompasses all things financial, fantastic advice for orthodontists or really any other high-income professionals. When I set out to do this podcast, I knew that Dr. Dolly, if I could get him to come on the show, would be a fantastic guest. So I was thrilled when he agreed and was so generous, giving his time and being willing to uh, spend a few minutes answering some questions I had that I think are going to be really relevant for all of you listening. It was also a great week for me because the University of North Carolina men's basketball team advanced to the final four, go Heels. Each week I try to bring you a little thought or a book review, and I've got a short book review today on a short book, and then we'll jump right into the interview. So let's do it. Today I would like to review a fantastic and rather brief book called Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield. Some of you may have read his earlier book, The War of Art, which covers similar material. I found this new book to be even more succinct and relevant to my life. If you've been wanting to start or finish a project, but find that you can't quite seem to get it done, this book is for you. The central premise is that just as there are creative, inspiring, and motivational forces in the universe, there are also forces arrayed against us that keep us from our goals. If naming the enemy is the first step to victory, the author provides a clear name for these antagonistic forces. Resistance. Quote, resistance is a repelling force. Its aim is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. End quote. One good thing about resistance, you learn and do the work, is that it always pushes back hardest against that which is most important or in our best interest to pursue. In that way, we can use it to guide us where we need to go. Just look for the thing in your life that has given you a million reasons why you can't or shouldn't do it. I also enjoyed the advice not to do too much research on a project, because at a certain point, all this analysis actually hurts your chances of completing your work. There was also good advice on what to do when you hit a wall and how to drive a project to the finish line and hit send. One of my favorite quotes was this, On the field of the self stand a knight and a dragon. You are the knight, resistance is the dragon. The only discourse between the knight and the dragon is battle. If you want to get serious about reaching your next goal or completing that important project, check out the short book, Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield. Jim Dolly, MD, grew up in Alaska before attending school in Utah and residency at the University of Arizona. He spent four years in the United States Air Force practicing medicine on four different continents. Now he's a practicing emergency physician in the Salt Lake City area. He developed an interest in personal finance and investing as a resident after being taken advantage of by several unscrupulous financial professionals. He started the White Coat Investor blog in May 2011 in order to help doctors, dentists, and other high-income professionals get a fair shake on Wall Street. In February 2014, he published his first book, The White Coat Investor, A Doctor's Guide to Personal Finance and Investment. 
Most recently, Dr. Dolly has launched the White Coat Investor Podcast, which you can find on iTunes. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodox Podcast, Dr. Dolly. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Jim, I know you guys are having an amazing snow year out there in Utah. Uh, where, where are you getting up skiing most often? Well, most often I ski at Solitude. I work in the clinic there, and so the price is right for skiing at that particular resort. But I've been getting more and more into the backcountry this year and really exploring some of the other mountains without chairlifts going up them. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's been a goal of mine. You know, East Coast skiing, though, is a little bit hit or miss. We've had some really great snow, and then we've had some super warm temperatures, so you never know what you're going to get out on the hill. Yeah, it's always good. Even the worst day skiing beats the uh, best day doing anything else, right? That's true. That's true. Well, I feel like there's a million topics we could discuss under this heading of finance and investing. Uh, so I asked some of the listeners of my podcast what areas they were interested in, and a lot of the questions I'm going to ask tonight uh, come from them. I'm just going to fire away if that's okay. That sounds great. Okay, good. The elephant in the room, I think, for younger healthcare professionals is student loans, and everyone likes to complain about their student loan balance. But Jim, wouldn't you agree that dental specialists, we have some of the most staggering balances that you've seen out there? I'm utterly impressed by the loan balances I see among dental specialists. And I think part of that is the uh, oral maxillofacial guys that go to dental school and then medical school. Yep. And, um, and then a lot of the dental specialty residencies you're actually paying for. You as got opposed it. to a physician resident who's getting paid during those years. And boy, those residents complain about their pay, but it sure beats pay and tuition. Yeah. Tell our readers what your thoughts are on addressing loans. I mean, where, where do you start with this? Do we blitzkrieg them? Do we stretch them out? What are kind of the principles that people should have in their mind about attacking these multi-hundred-thousand-dollar loan balances? Well, I think the first thing to look at is, is whether you're going to have somebody else pay them off or whether you're going to be paying them off yourself. If you're working for a 501c3 and you owe four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars $600,000, $800,000, going for public service loan forgiveness is going to come out ahead of anything else you could possibly do. And so I think if you are in some sort of a position where you're working for the VA or you're working for the military or you're directly employed by a nonprofit, I think that's pretty much a no-brainer to go for public service loan forgiveness at this point. Yeah. But in so much as you are, you know, in private practice, you're employed by a for-profit employer, you're going to be paying those things back. And you really ought to ask yourself, well, how long do I want to have student loans hanging over my head? And so what I typically recommend, particularly for the physicians, is that they continue to live like they did as a resident for two to five years after they finish their residency and use the difference between their resident income and their physician income to pay off their loans and to really get started on their savings. And I think the principle there is to really use your greatest wealth building tool, your income, to get rid of that debt before you get used to the income. Because the problem is we tend to, you know, we tend to grow into that income uh, almost as fast as we can increase our income. And that doesn't leave much left over to build wealth with. So I'm a big fan of getting them out of the way relatively early in your career. And then you can really enjoy the good life on that income you have. But as though that debt to income ratio gets higher and higher, I fully understand that where it might have been two to five years before, maybe it's seven to nine now. Um, it really just depends on, on what you're able to carve out and put toward getting rid of those loans. 
But I think it's kind of giving up to say, well, I'm just going to have student loans forever and I'm going to make payments on a 30-year plan for them. I don't think that's a good idea because too many things can happen in your life to that income that's really going to affect your ability to pay them off later. I think getting them out of the way early is pretty smart. Yeah. One thing that's interesting among orthodontists is that there is a fairly large variation in their take-home pay. You know, some are making 150, then you've got people doing 400, 800, I mean, some seven-figure incomes out there. And that's often correlated with owning your own practice. How much of personal finance do you think is having a good offense, uh, increasing your, your take-home pay to be able to service these obligations? You know, it's really interesting because you always see these comparisons among the different specialties and the different professions of how much the average internist makes versus how much the average dentist makes or whatever. And I've always been impressed that the variation within each field or specialty is far greater than the variation between the averages of a specialty. Yeah. Um, and certainly it's far easier to pay off $500,000 in loans if you're making a million dollars a year than if you're making $200,000 a year. And so I think in so much as you can play both offense and defense, you should. By offense, obviously, we mean earning more money. And by defense, we mean spending less money. And sometimes in life, it's easier to spend less money and you can get more bang for your buck there. But there are times in life when it's just easier to earn more money, especially if you have a specialized skill that pays very well. And so absolutely, I think that is a key to getting rid of big student loans as well as building wealth is to push your income up when you can. Now, you don't want to go crazy and burn out, um, but do those things that are going to make your income higher. Understand where your income comes from and don't be afraid to go into business um, because those who really understand how the business world works are those who tend to have the higher incomes in any specialty. Yeah, and that's totally true. And I find that a lot of people come out and they have these high student loan balances and that makes them more reluctant to take out even more debt to buy a practice or start a practice. And, and, and in a way that, that fear sometimes I think limits or caps the upside and makes it harder than to dig out from underneath these student loans. Yeah, there's no doubt there's additional risk there with taking on another half million dollars in debt for a practice. Um, but there's also a lot of risk in trying to pay off $600,000 in student loans while only earning $150,000 as somebody's associate. Um, so you really have to balance those risks. And I think it does make sense sometimes to borrow to buy a practice. Yeah. But that said, you know, I'd live pretty lean those first few years and get that debt paid down as fast as I could uh, just in case, you know, something happens to that practice, something happens to that income. And you end up in a situation where you really not only have a mortgage hanging over your head and student loans hanging over your head, but also a big practice loan. Yeah. You know, some doctors tell me they feel like they're paying all their bills. Maybe they've slipped out of this uh, resident spending mindset and they feel like, you know, I'm, I'm paying all my bills. We've got a good lifestyle. I'm just not getting ahead financially. And, you know, sometimes clearly the problem, though, is that they're just spending too much or they think maybe they're spending too much. And it seems like the standard of living is so variable from family to family. And you, you alluded to that it's really difficult to reduce that. If you've grown accustomed to a certain standard of living, you're almost locked in. Uh, that seems like a difficult situation for doctors to find themselves in. It is difficult. You're far better off not getting into that situation than trying to correct it once you're there. But here's one way to think about it. Look down the street. There's somebody that lives on your street that makes significantly less than you that is getting by. If you live like that person does and take the difference between your two incomes 
and save it, well, there you go. That's enough to reach financial independence by the end of your career. Um, and a lot of people just don't think about that. They always compare up, you know, to somebody making more money than them rather than to somebody making less. I mean, it must sound pretty pathetic to somebody who's living in a household with the average American household income of about $55,000 that somebody making one hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000 just can't make ends meet. You know, it really sounds pretty silly when you put it that way. Um, yeah. But that, that's the truth of the matter. You know, as doctors, we're paid well. And if you're having trouble carving out enough of that that you can build wealth, um, you probably got a spending problem, not an earning problem. Doesn't mean you can't work on what you earn, too. Um, but the place to start is, is usually with your defense and, and spending a little bit less. One question that I get from new graduates is how to think about investing in the face of student loans and practice loans and other debt that they have, some of which is at higher interest rates, 6 or 8%. How do they balance this? When should they start investing and, and how should they start that process? Well, it's complicated, right? And that's probably what messes people up is they realize it's complicated and then it just feels overwhelming to them. But the truth of the matter is that both investing and paying down your loans increase your net worth. They build wealth for you. So they're both good things to do. So there's no wrong answer here. Paying down your debt's a good thing. Investing is a good thing. Splitting the difference is a good thing. You're not really going to go wrong. But there's a few things to consider as you make your decision as to how you're going to split, how much of your uh, disposable income goes toward paying down debt and how much goes toward investing. I would consider your interest rate on that debt to start with. You know, if you've got some credit card charging you 15%, that's your best investment, paying that off. And so that's a no-brainer to, to be paying off loans like that. Likewise, if you've got student loans in the 8 to 10% range, those ought to be pretty darn high on your priority list. But if you've refinanced your student loans and you've got them at 2 or 3 or 4%, well, I think you can then start making a case for doing some investing on the side, particularly in a tax-advantaged account, and especially if you're getting a match from your employer for that investment. Um, but putting money into a Roth IRA where it'll never be taxed again, or into a tax-deferred retirement account like a 401k or a profit-sharing plan where you get significant tax benefits, uh, I think you can make a pretty good case for doing that once you can get your interest rates down somewhat on your debt. But at the same time, how long do you want to be in debt? You don't want to be in debt for 40 years, so you need to make sure you're putting enough toward that that you'll get out of debt in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. You know, a lot of the orthodontists that I know are really entrepreneurial. They've grown their practices very large, or they maybe they even own multiple practices or employ associate doctors. And I think sometimes... This hard-won success makes them reluctant to invest in something outside of their direct control. So they want to say, oh, I want to invest in real estate, or I want to partner with another business owner, or something more tangible than public securities like stocks and bonds. What do you think when you hear that? I don't have a problem with that. I think there are two great schools of thought when it comes to investing your money. The first is to not put all your eggs in one basket. And that basically argues for diversifying. And the easiest way to diversify in our world is to simply buy a handful of index funds. So you basically own every publicly traded company in the world and every bond in the world. It's very easy to do. In 10 minutes, you can basically buy them all through a Vanguard index fund at very low cost and be very well diversified. 
And if you fund that investing plan adequately, it will get you to any reasonable financial goal. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the school of thought perhaps best exemplified by Warren Buffett, that you put all your eggs in one basket or a few baskets and you watch them very closely. You'll notice what he does. He's not just picking stocks. He is putting himself on the board that's managing those companies. And so he's keeping a very close eye on the companies he invests in. And it's really the same way for any entrepreneur. You know, it's terrifying to me to think about what a large percentage of my net worth is tied up in the white coat investor business. Hmm. But nobody knows that business better than I do. And it's a profitable business that has excellent return on my money. And it's also, uh, you know, something that uh, I enjoy and that I'm good at and that should provide excellent returns. So there are really two ends of the spectrum there. And I think either of them is fine and being somewhere in the middle of them is fine. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily criticize somebody who prefers to invest in tangible real estate because I think that's a very good way to invest. And I think returns can be excellent. But you got to keep in mind it takes a, a significantly higher level of skill and work to invest in, you know, individual real estate properties or to invest in another person's practice or to invest in your own practice than it does to just go buy a Vanguard index fund. And if you're not willing to acquire that expertise or hire that expertise and put in some work, you know, that's maybe not the way you ought to be investing the majority of your money. But I, I recommend that people invest in both real estate and stocks through low cost, broadly diversified index funds. I think they're both great ways to invest and I think they really complement each other. So I wouldn't necessarily talk anybody out of doing either one of those because I think they're both smart things to do. Great. You know, I think my bias, if I'm totally honest, is that, you know, I want my passive investments to be really passive. I mean, actually passive. So I, I lean more towards the index fund end of things. I think you wrote an article recently talking about, you know, how real estate, some of the increased returns come from leverage and from the, the, the work on the part of the owner to dig into it. But like you say, if that's someone's skill set, I think they can do pretty well with it. Absolutely. You know, another thing I see with some doctors who are very successful is, or some that perhaps are not, is that they're wary of these government-sponsored retirement plans, like a 401k. They say, if I'm going to invest, I want complete control. I want access to my money. I'm concerned with the whole fee structure. Is that a case of someone kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Should people be looking at these plans seriously? Absolutely. I think that is a big mistake to skip any government-sponsored plan. I mean, the very best tax break available to us are these tax-deferred retirement accounts. I mean, you can put a lot of money into a tax-deferred retirement account every year. And just because you put it in a tax-deferred retirement account, like a 401k, doesn't mean you can't invest it in your favorite type of investing. You know, you can invest in real estate through an IRA or a 401k, particularly if you're the owner of the practice and you can set up the plan yourself. And so I wouldn't necessarily shy away from taking advantage of those tax breaks because they're huge. If your marginal tax rate is 40 or 45 percent, every dollar you put into a tax deferred retirement account knocks 40 or 45 cents off your tax bill that year. You know, if you can put $100,000 into that account, well, that's $45,000 right off the bottom line of your taxes. And particularly later in life, there are lots of opportunities to get that money out at a much lower tax rate because you get to fill the brackets when you pull the money out. For example, a married couple gets to take about $20,000 out, assuming they have no other taxable income in retirement. 
they can take $20,000 a year out of their tax-deferred retirement account at a tax rate of 0%. Another $18,000 comes out at 10%. Another $50,000 comes out at 15%. Now, if you're putting money in at 45% and you're taking it out at 0, 10, and 15%, that's really a winning combination. So I think understanding how those accounts really work is, is pretty critical. This thought that you can't get to your money very easily, I think that's a lot of bunk as well. There's a lot of exceptions that allow you to get to your retirement money. But even if you don't qualify for one of those exceptions, I mean, you're only paying a 10% penalty. And if once you've had that money in there for 10 or 20 years, you've probably gotten more benefit out of it than that 10% penalty you're paying. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is you can even take that money out of the account before you get to be age 59 and a half. For example, if you want to retire early, uh, you can take advantage of the uh, SEP rule, which stands for the Substantially Equal Periodic Payments. And what that means is you can start taking the money out before 59 and a half. It just means you got to take the same amount out each year between whenever you start taking it out and when you turn 59 and a half. But it comes out penalty free. Um, and so a lot of people just don't realize that money is not nearly as locked up as they think it is. Yeah, thanks. That's a great answer. So when you set out to invest, how important is the makeup of your portfolio? Do you think success in investing comes from picking the right investments inside your accounts, or is it more the consistent habits that you use to build the, the value of those accounts? Honestly, the longer I do this, the more I think it doesn't matter so much what you invest in, as long as it's something reasonable. The key, particularly in the beginning, is your savings rate. And I'm appalled how few people know this critical number for their own financial situation. I mean, your savings rate is a very simple number to calculate. You basically take the money you put toward building wealth in the last year and divide it by your gross income. That's your savings rate. And you, where you want that number as a doctor is probably in the 20% range. You know, 15% might be enough, particularly if you have a long career. But 5 to 10% is not enough. It's just not enough. So you've got to start where you're at. Even if you're only saving 5% a year now, you know, add 1% each year until you get up where you need to be. You know, save your raises and your income increases and try to get up into that 20% range where you're going to be successful. But beyond that, you know, making sure you're adequately funding a reasonable investing plan, I think there are many roads to Dublin, meaning that you can invest in a lot of different ways and be successful. Obviously, you want to minimize your taxes. You want to minimize your fees. You want to make sure you have a plan that you can stick with through thick and thin, even if there's a housing meltdown, even if there's a stock market crash. You want to be able to stick with your plan. Um, but there's a lot of different reasonable investing plans that are going to get you to your financial goals. Yeah, I really like the article on your website, 150 Portfolios Better Than Yours, and, and our listeners can go check that out. And I think you make that point, and you list you know, a number of viable options. It seems like there are a, a lot of different ways to be successful. Right. There are dozens and dozens of reasonable investment plans, but the key is to pick one, write it down, and follow it for a few decades. That's the hard part, is actually sticking with the plan. Um, there are plenty of reasonable plans that, if funded adequately, will get you to your retirement goals. Right. What are your thoughts on financial advisors? Does everyone need one, and how would you go about picking a good one? Well, that's a great question, a very loaded question, uh, if you've read any of my writing about financial advisors. I've been accused of being anti-financial advisor. I, I really am not. 
What I'm against, however, is people who are getting bad advice or paying too much for good advice. I would guess that probably 80% of doctors need and want a financial advisor. And I'm perfectly fine with that. It is a reasonable option to learn how to do this stuff yourself. It's not that complicated. It's far less complicated than medicine or dentistry. Um, but if you don't like it, if you don't have an interest in it, you're probably not going to be very successful at it. So for that 80% of doctors, I think the best thing I can do for them is get them into the hands of somebody who offers good advice at a fair price. And the secret to getting good advice is understanding how you're paying the advisor. The vast majority of the people out there calling themselves financial advisors are really commissioned salesmen in disguise. They're selling something. It might be whole life insurance. It might be loaded mutual funds. It might be their scheme of the day. But you don't want to be going and asking for advice to someone who's trying to sell you something. It's like going to the barber and asking if you should uh, get your hair cut. You know, the answer is always yes. If you go to an insurance agent looking for financial advice, the advice is always buy more insurance. And so I think you have to first make sure you're getting unbiased advice. And that means a fee-only advisor. Someone you're paying a fee to just for their advice. That way they have a fiduciary duty, meaning they have to do what's right for you, even if it's not what's right for their pocketbook. But they have a fiduciary duty to you. And I think that's the way you get good advice. Now, the way you make sure you get it at a fair price is you understand what the going rate is for financial advice because they will charge you as much as the market will bear. And if you don't know what the price is, you're likely to overpay. So financial advice is not cheap. It's expensive stuff. Um, but you should plan on paying a four-figure amount each year for your financial advice. If you're paying a five-figure amount, you're probably paying too much. So a typical standard financial advisory fee might be 1% of your assets under management per year. So if you have a million dollars, that's $10,000 a year. That's, to me, the upper range of what you ought to be paying for financial advice because there are plenty of advisors out there who are willing to do it for a flat fee of four, five, maybe $7,000 a year. So if you're paying 1% of your assets and you have $2 million invested, that's $20,000 a year. You could probably knock 75% of that price off. Um, so I think you really need to pay attention to what the going rate is for financial advisors and not be afraid to negotiate it down because they're going to give you a significant discount rather than having you walk out the door. It just doesn't cost that much more to manage, time-wise or money-wise, to manage $2 million than it does to manage half a million dollars. It's basically the same process, just a different number of zeros on the ledger. Yeah, thanks. That's fantastic. What about insurance? Uh, a lot of doctors get out and they know they need insurance. I mean, there clearly are some types of insurance that you have to have, and then there are some sorts of insurance that probably you should almost never have. How do you thread the needle there? I think the key is to realize that insurance is, on average, a losing proposition. The insurance company has to charge enough that not only can they cover all the payouts they have of the people who had something bad happen to them, but still pay for all their expenses and their profit. And so you got to realize that, on average, you're going to lose money on insurance. That doesn't mean you shouldn't buy any, but you should limit how much you buy to those things that you cannot self-insure. Your goal here is to insure only against financial catastrophes. Now, if you think about what the financial catastrophes in your life are, it's probably you dying if anybody else depends on your income. 
So you need to insure against that with life insurance. It's you becoming disabled. So you need to insure against that with disability insurance. It's you being sued, both for professional malpractice as well as personal liability at your home or from your car or whatever. So you need personal and professional liability insurance. You know, if your house burns to the ground, that's probably a financial catastrophe too. So you need some property insurance on the really expensive stuff in your life. If you became ill or injured, that might also be a financial catastrophe. You wouldn't believe how big a bill I can run up in the ER in just an hour. Um, so you probably need to carry some health insurance. But you don't need to insure your iPhone. <laughs> you know, if you drop your iPhone in the toilet, you can afford to replace it. You don't need to insure your vacation. Um, you know, if you can't afford to just throw away the money that you're going to spend on vacation, you probably can't afford to take that vacation. Likewise, once you are financially independent, you don't need to continue to pay for disability insurance or life insurance. Because if you died, your family could live just fine on what you've saved because it's enough to pay for you and them to live for the rest of your lives. So it's certainly enough for just them to live on for the rest of their lives. Likewise, as you get close to the age at which disability insurance stops paying out, which is usually 65 or 67, it really doesn't make sense to keep paying those premiums if you're only going to get a year's worth of benefit out of it. At that point, it may just not be worth the premiums. So you don't necessarily need to have life insurance for your entire life. After age 65, hopefully you're retired and you have enough money to be financially independent that you don't have to work anymore the rest of your life. So you don't necessarily need these whole life insurance policies that are going to give you a death benefit for your entire life. The financial catastrophe is dying before you become financially independent, not afterward. And so there's a lot of people out there running around selling whole life insurance to physicians and dentists based on, you know, that they ought to have this great policy, that it's a great retirement account, or it's a great way to save for college, or it's a great way to protect your assets from your creditors. But in the end, it's a, usually a great way for the guy selling it to make a big fat commission. You just don't realize the commissions on those things are anywhere from 50 to 110% of the first year's premium. So if he can talk you into buying a policy that costs $30,000 a year, he gets to put maybe $30,000 in his pocket for selling that policy to you. Now you know why he's selling it so hard. Um, he doesn't have to sell very many of those a year to make a very good income. But just because he's selling it doesn't mean you should buy it. Right. You mentioned financial independence, and this is another thought I was having today as I was preparing for the interview. You interact with doctors that have reached that financial independence number, whatever it is. Let's say they've been successful in their practice and they've been good savers and they've reached, I don't know, five or ten million dollars net worth and they're maybe they're a little bit younger, they're in their their late forties, they're in their fifties. I feel like if that were me, I might feel a little bit like the dog that finally caught the car and, and I don't really know what to do with it. How do how do doctors make that transition once they've hit that number? Well, what a wonderful problem to have, right? Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of doctors aren't having that problem because they, they don't save enough or they spend too much. Financial independence is really a relatively easy calculation. You basically take what you spend each year and multiply it by 25, and that amount is more or less what makes you financially independent. Because you could live pretty much indefinitely on about 4% of your portfolio. And um, so the less you spend, the sooner you reach financial independence. I know an anesthesiologist who blogs uh, at the Physician on Fire, who basically became financially independent at about 41, just because uh, his family doesn't spend that much money. 
And so they've got enough that they can live the rest of their lives spending $80,000 a year. But if he was spending twice that much, he'd have another five or six years before he reached financial independence. Um, so it's important to realize that when you can reach financial independence is extremely related to how much you spend each year. If you want early financial independence in your life, the key is really to, to save a larger percentage of your income. But once you get to that point, then you can really look at your life and say, now what? What do I really want to be doing with my life now that I don't have to work for money? And it might be that you keep doing exactly what you're doing now. And that's wonderful to have a career that you wake up and you're excited about and you go to work and do and love, even though you don't have to do it for money. I mean, that's a wonderful place to be at in life. But more likely, what most people do is they realize there's some things about their career that they like and some things about it they don't like. So they start molding their life from what it currently is to what their ideal life looks like. And the more overlap you have between your current life and your ideal life, the less burnout you're going to feel and the happier you're going to be. That might mean you take every Friday off. That might mean you stop doing a procedure you don't find particularly fun. It might mean taking care of more disadvantaged people and being able to do more work for free at your practice. It might mean going on mission trips to Africa or Central America or something like that. It might mean leaving uh, medicine or dentistry or orthodontics altogether and following a different career, an encore career like being a ski guide or something else. Uh, I think that what people do with financial independence is all over the board. But I think there's very few people that get to it in their 40s and just decide to hang it up and go spend all their days at the golf course. But if that's what you want, you can do that too. <laughs> yeah. One thing, you know, I admire about you is that as you seem to, and you document this on your blog, have achieved some level of financial success, it seems like you're translating that into a more enjoyable work-life balance today. I mean, even if you necess haven't necessarily reached all your financial goals, you're starting to apply those things uh, in your life, making more time for families and hobbies and I think you and I both love this quote from Seth Godin, uh, instead of wondering when your next vacation is, perhaps we should be setting up a life we don't need to escape from. What advice would you have for orthodontists who are trying to translate their financial success into a more fulfilling life in the present? Well, I think uh, it's a really great exercise to sit down and actually write down what your ideal life looks like. How many days does it involve you going to work? What kind of work does it involve you doing? What other activities are you doing? What kind of trips or vacations are you going on? You know, and really getting into the nitty gritty detail of what you think an awesome life looks like. And then working toward making your life look like that. For me, as an emergency physician, one of the things I really didn't like about my work and that I've never really liked is practicing after midnight. You know, emergency medicine is a 24-7, 365 career. And 80% of the shifts we work are outside of banker's hours. But uh, in particular, being at work at 3 or 4 in the morning is something I've never liked. I've never liked it ever since I was a resident. And so when I had enough money to say, I don't have to do that anymore, I stopped doing that. Now, that's cost me a fair amount of money. Because in my group, we basically subsidized those willing to work nights. They get paid very well and quite a bit better than those who are working the day shifts. But I had enough money that I could look and say, well, what do I want out of life? If I don't have to do something for the money, what am I going to do differently? And one of those things that I chose right in the beginning was to drop those night shifts. 
And so I no longer work at three or four in the morning. And that has made my quality of life much, much better. And, uh, and I don't regret it one bit. Yeah. That's fantastic. I feel like there's so many topics we could cover. Uh, we talk about college savings or doctor mistakes or uh, how to train your kids. But I guess I would encourage our listeners to go to your website. I mean, you've really covered this in such great detail. What's kind of driven you to continue doing this, to continue to educate doctors? And is that something you continue to get a lot of enjoyment out of? I do. It's been really fun to watch what the white coat investor has become over the last six years. Certainly in the beginning of any blog, you feel like you're not writing for anybody but your mother. But gradually, readership grows, and, and you start realizing that you're really affecting real people's lives. Um, and when you save somebody a quarter million dollars or a half million dollars, boy, they're your friend for life. <laughs> and so it's just been really fun to, to get to know thousands and thousands of physicians and dentists and other high-income professionals across the country and to have them come back and say, hey, thanks, you really you really made a difference. And to have them recommend the site or recommend their book to their friends is is the highest endorsement I can I can think of. So it's really been a fun journey to feel like I'm making a difference not only in the lives of my patients, but also in the lives of my fellow practitioners. And now when I call somebody up and transfer a patient to them, a lot of times I have a little financial consult on the phone with them <laughs> just because people recognize my name. And so that's been a lot of fun as well. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those people that have followed your blog and I feel like I've derived a lot of benefit from it. Dollars and cents that I can measure, but also just a, that broader awareness of what's going on. So I want to tell our listeners to check out your website, whitecoatinvestor.com. Go out there and buy Dr. Dolly's book, The White Coat Investor, on Amazon. Uh, and if you're looking for leads on loan refinancing, financial advisors, mortgage brokers, all that sort of stuff, there's some great recommendations on the White Coat Investor website. Jim, do you have any parting thoughts you want to share with our audience? I just want to help people to feel like they're empowered. A lot of times this stuff feels so complicated and so over our heads that we feel like we can't learn it. But it's really not that hard. And if you just dive in and learn it little by little, uh, you realize that this is kind of an essential knowledge base just for being an adult in our complicated financial society. So we might as well jump in and get started. And the first few things you learn are so high yield um, that you may, you may make millions off the first book you read, first good financial book you read. So I just really encourage people to take a little bit of control and get started. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. You know, the biggest mistake is just ignoring it for years and years. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for your time tonight and for your efforts to educate doctors and, and make them more financially successful. You've delivered some amazing content here for our listeners, and I just want to thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again. Have a great night. You too. Hey, guys. Wasn't that fantastic? I want to thank Dr. Dolly for coming on the podcast and sharing his knowledge with us. Go check out Dr. Dolly's website, whitecoatinvestor.com. It's got some fantastic advice on all things financial. I don't care if you're a beginner or an advanced investor. You're going to find something there that's interesting and that's relevant to your situation. I also really like the comments, actually, that are left after each article. Jim has a really educated and well-rounded readership that leaves all sorts of interesting comments and follow-up discussion after each article. And there's even a forum if you want to get into more in-depth discussions. If you're looking for something a little bit more Thanks for all you do to support my podcast and for sharing it with your friends who are orthodontists. That really means a lot to me and is a big compliment. If you wouldn't mind going on iTunes and leaving a review of the podcast, that would be fantastic as well. 
Thanks again. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. Thank you.